you know that I had asked you to read this section. It is the only section in Goldsworthy's uh, book that I have actually asked you to read. <clears throat> I ask you to deal on <clears throat> page 543 <clears throat> with this uh, this heading, uh, Technology, uh, Christian Wisdom and Technology, because this is, of course, at the end of a, of a chapter where he has dealt ex extensively with this subject of Christian wisdom. He, of course, had dealt with the what he called the books of wisdom uh, in the Old Testament and how that they reflected uh, Christ, were intended to reveal Christ. And then he tries to bring that whole discussion uh, to a conclusion, and I think wisely by taking up this matter of technology, wisdom, as he has described it, and as he has studied it. Now, how does that relate to technology? And uh, I think that's a very relevant subject. Uh, and he had uh, some very good uh things to say on it. And I wanted us to share that. Uh, we'll share a couple of other things. He said he wanted to conclude this discussion. This is page 543 with a, a comment on wisdom and technology. A simple definition of technology is man's ability to make things. This is the very thing that the word wisdom is applied to in the book of Exodus. Another way of looking at technology is as the practical application of scientific knowledge. Now he's being very precise in his wording here. Technology may be said to be one of the first implications of the cultural mandate as man became a tool maker. Uh, I have thought about before, and I was reminded again as I was entertaining these thoughts, we have no knowledge, we have no inspired knowledge as to any of the details that we would, we would all like, our curious minds would like details. But when the Lord commanded Adam <laughs> to till the ground and to work it, tend the garden, uh, being a man who spent his entire life working with tools in my hands. I cannot read that without wondering what exactly did he have to do that with? What did he make? He surely made things. There's no doubt he made things. He would have had that skill and knowledge right out of the creative hand of God. And if he went to do a task, he would have the skill and knowledge to provide himself with the tools to do that task. <clears throat> we don't know much about what it was, but certainly <clears throat> we could say, we could say, that whatever it was, that was the beginning 
of the what we now call technology, the development and making of things, particularly tools. He said there have been many significant technological breakthroughs which radically altered the course of human history. However, until this century, the rate at which technological advances have been made was relatively slow. The full significance of the invention of the wheel, for example, would hardly have occurred to those who first used it. Now, I'm, I'm not real clear where he's coming from in his thoughts, and I suppose it really doesn't matter. But what he says there is, is a, is certainly a statement I agree with, uh, in the beginning of, of man's history, I'm certain that men could not have imagined where all these things would go. I'm, I'm very sure that's right. The linking of the use of the lever with that of the wheel had extraordinary results over a very long period. Then when these were linked together with the invention of the steam engine, and later the internal combustion engine, the results came thick and fast. Things started changing really fast once those technologies were in place. Then he says, but generally speaking, prior to the Industrial Revolution, man had time to adapt to the ramifications of such technological developments. He had more opportunity than we have today to think through the ethical implications of such advances. I think that's why I thought this, that, that statement summarizes why I thought this was important for us to entertain. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, Developments were very slow. And so, of course, there was time to consider a development. They come so quickly now that we hardly have time to even adjust before it's moved on to the next. I remember many years ago, it may still be true, I don't know, but uh, many years ago in the early developments of the computer. Uh, it used to be a joke that really wasn't a joke, that if you went to the store and bought a computer before you got home, it was obsolete and they had a replacement for it. That was actually almost true there for some period of time. Uh, and so the developments, the point is that technological developments are so coming so rapidly that we don't have time to think through whether a development is right or wrong, whether it's well used or poorly used, or whether it should be used at all. He goes on, but now changes occur so fast that adapting to them is more than man can handle. Now we find that we already have the technology 
to do many things before we have a given enough thought to the ethical implications of doing them. In other words, we have the technology of doing things faster than we have the time to think about whether or not they should be done at all. Now, he does later on go on into, he brings into this, this discussion the matter of the uh, nuclear research and nuclear bomb and so on and so forth. And I, I don't discern clearly his position from this. I don't know that he was trying to set forward any position on the nuclear bomb itself or the use of nuclear energy. He's just making the point of uh, there are implications to the development of technology. There are far-reaching implications to the development of technology. I have discussed with some of you and have discussed openly and publicly uh, this application of this subject when it comes to medicine. We have the ability to to string along a person's death we're not we're not saving them from death we're just uh prolonging the death process at least physically speaking uh and and I have not I have been clear in my disapproval of some of those things that go on in in the medical field that extend beyond reason uh, people's physical physiological functions i won't i won't even call it life i don't know i don't know if it's life or not i only know they extend the physiological functions on and on uh because we can because we can but should we <laughs> Has that technology put us in a, a quandary about what we should or shouldn't be doing? And he talks about Hiroshima, that the debate continues because of the implications of it. And certainly there were and are implications. The arms race demonstrates that, that understanding the issues does not provide the means of controlling the monster that has been created. The ethical problem the ethical problems created by technology are also clearly seen in the fields of medicine and biology. It's not only Christians who are alarmed by the positive application of present achievements in in vitro fertilization, organ transplant, genetic engineering. Many people are saying research in these areas should be slowed to give us time to think through the issue. And thus, on the one hand, it's seen as a race against time to develop new ways of controlling our bodies. It says on the next page, we are concerned with the depersonalization of the individual and the restriction of certain freedoms. Uh, this is a moral issue. This is a moral issue. And it goes to the subject of, for us as Christians, it goes to the subject of wisdom. Wisdom. It, this technology is a challenging subject when it comes to the matter of 
Christian wisdom. It has outpaced our thinking uh, in a number of ways. And I like the application he makes on page 545. He makes the application of the fact that the scripture says in Psalm 90 verse 12, different translation, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So it's not so much, you know, teach us how to extend our days. Help us to count them. Help us to set them in the context of God's wisdom. That's our task as believers. And technology has no place in lording over us. And an uh, uh, immoral or amoral demands because they can. He says on top of page 546, the ultimate question has become how to control both the rate and quality of births and how long life can and should be prolonged by means of all the technology at our disposal. The individual no longer numbers his days, but passes that responsibility over to the technocrats to do it for him. Whatever you may or may not think about that, <laughs> uh, it, is a, it is a challenge. It is a challenging subject. And it is one that our children, your children, will face at a higher level even than we do today. Because there is going to come, if God doesn't in his mercy stop us in our race of madness, the day is going to come that they're going to regulate who can and will be born and who can and will not be born. Who can and who will continue to live. Because technology will enable them to make those, those choices. And the wicked heart of men have no interest in the Christian concept of numbering our days. Or certainly no interest in applying the wisdom of God to them. And that is Goldsworthy's point. Now, this paragraph on the bottom of page 546 is very heavily philosophical, in my opinion. I, I totally understand it, but I don't uh, feel that I can uh, articulate very well uh, the content of that paragraph, but I think it's important that it be articulated. So I've asked Luke to please just give us, come and give us a little summarization of that of that paragraph for the purpose of our study. And Luke, for the sake of the recording, if you don't mind, if you'll come up here, that way uh, the recording will have what you say. The pastor, as is his way, Uh, notified me early this week that I would say a word on this paragraph. So let it be written, so let it be done. 
And so I don't know if this is what he had in mind. Simply some comments on this paragraph. Let's read it. Because science and technology are expressions of the cultural mandate, they must be affirmed and welcomed by Christians. Indeed, the Christian view of man and creation provides the scientist and technologist with the perspective of their pursuits, which not only made them possible, but which should have prevented them from creating the monster. I suppose that's the monster to which he had been referring. When the cultural mandate is accepted on the basis of revelation, the proper distinctions between God, man, and the world can be maintained. But when it ceases to be seen as mandate, that is, as task authorized by a superior, it comes to be regarded as the natural extension of the autonomous man. Removed from its benign relationship to the order of the universe, it is adopted as the power base for all kinds of domination. The dominion of man was intended to reflect the gracious shepherd rule of God, but it became self, uh, corrupted into self-seeking power play. Wisdom urges us to go on struggling to translate the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge into the means of living by faith in the world. Its base in the doctrine of creation and its emphasis on the practicalities of life here and now provide a check against the wrongful use of an orientation towards the future life to escape our responsibilities in the present. Wisdom reminds us that the resurrection life will be reached by means of our pilgrimage through this life in this world. Without the benefit of having read all of the rest of the book, I have assumed from the context that what Goldsworthy means by cultural mandate here is what we might call the dominion mandate. That being the case, and for those unfamiliar with this common reform expression, we have to ask and should ask, what is the dominion mandate? And I suppose we should say for the purpose of the recording that while some of us may have Ken, uh, Ken Gentry's and Rush Dooney's books on our shelves, we are not Christian Reconstructionists. And uh, contrary to some of our former pastors, believing in the dominion mandate is not the same as being a Christian, a theonomic reconstructionist. With that disclaimer, what is the dominion mandate? Well, it appears first in Genesis 1.28, And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. It was then reiterated in Psalms 8. Thou madest him, and I know that there are there's a double meaning uh, in that passage in Psalms 8. There's a uh, reference to Christ. There is reference to, to a real physical man. Psalms 8, thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. That's a profound statement. Thou hast put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. It would seem clear from Scripture then that the Creator has delegated to men the stewardship of His creation. Of course, He has no more given over the results than a plantation owner has given over the title of his lands or his servants to his farm manager. But under God, 
under God. The Creator apparently has put everything else under man. And I think, and I think Goldsworthy does make this point, that is an exceptionally important fact. It is a philosophical issue. It is a theological issue, doctrinal. It is in every way important for us to grasp that under the Creator, He has put everything under man. That carries with it immense responsibility. And it is not a suggestion, it is a universal requirement. Failing to acknowledge it at all is the same thing as failing to perform the mandate in a biblical way, I would argue. Nobody is exempt. And everyone will be judged on how they have been faithful or not faithful to this dominion requirement, this creation requirement. But as Goldworthy notes on page 547 in the end of that paragraph we just read, it is not a decree without directions. My words, his notions, he said wisdom urges us to go on. The wisdom, of course, he's referring to is in the context of this particular book. Gospel and wisdom, the wisdom books. Wisdom urges us to go on. Wisdom reminds us, Goldsworthy said. And of course, his references to the wisdom of God. So there is this decree, but it is not a decree without directions. God has not, in other words, left us with this mighty responsibility without a mighty collection of wisdom with which to guide us. He also has not left us without the tools physically and mentally with which to perform our dominion tasks. In the words of our confession, <laughs> yes, those can you remember those? In the words of our confession, chapter 4, paragraph 2, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created. You could really give a month-long series of lectures just on that phrase, what it means to have been rendered fit unto that life to God for which they were created being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts. These are all tools that are required for having proper dominion. And of course, some who might be paying attention may say, well, yeah, that's great, but that was man before the fall. And the mandate was given to a pre-fall man. So we can't be expected to perform this heavy dominion duty today. Well, if you are one of those who do object in that way, I would say that on that logic, you should leave off procreation at once and forever, because that was also a pre-fall mandate. In actuality, the only thing that can remove a decree of God is not a sin of man, but another decree of God. And I don't find where the dominion mandate was ever repealed. Man still has the mandate, and he still has the tools rendering him fit 
to do his duty, albeit not perfectly and certainly sinfully, but still regularly. He still has the wisdom of God in the gospel and the books of the Bible to guide him. God expects us, therefore, to be dominion stewards. So, <clears throat> no word about technology yet, as you might have noticed, but that is because the discussion of technology is absolutely pointless without the proper context. Technology is only refined rebellion apart from submission to the creator of the universe. Maybe R.G. Lee would say it's just primitive paganism in plastic pomp. In the context of the dominion mandate, technology, any science or art for that matter, any practical or technical discipline that is not immoral is a tool for the continued or increasing submission and use of the created order under the only creature that has been charged with making everything in his experience a monument of the greatness of the master. I will repeat that because I think that really gets to the crux of the issue. We are, we are, and I like sometimes to repeat that to myself because we, we I think sometimes lose track of how bombarded we are every day from every angle with the ideologies of the world. One being that you are no more special than any other creature. That's a lie. It's garbage. We are the only creature that we know of in the entire universe that has been charged with making everything in our experience to be a monument of the greatness of the Master. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that God would create every material with which man has to work? And call it good. But of course, good doesn't necessarily mean that it is perfect as to its full potential. It's good. But then he would say, rule over all of this. And in the literal Hebrew, make it subservient to your use. Everything you will need, I have created, but you We'll still have to labor to produce what your existence requires. And you may take all of my raw materials and develop their potential. And he said that to man in a pre-fall context. When you consider that the curse has introduced complexity and resistance into the process of dominion, we need technology. We need science more than ever to have any advantage in making the created world serve our purposes. Technology, I would argue, is like art and everything else, not something that we do along with the world. It is the king's property. It's ours first. 
towers. It's a topic for another discussion, but it's a mysterious connection, I think, that he has connected these things as well with our happiness. With our happiness. I don't think we should forget that Adam's happiness was not only in the evening walks, but also in the daytime dominion. If you think for one minute that taking care of the garden during the day before the fall was a drudgery for Adam, I think you've missed it entirely. Having dominion in God's creation, using it, developing it, working it, improving it, is connected with our happiness. That's another discussion. We said, though, that we need technology to our advantage in making the world serve our purposes. But this, this is the rub. Purposes. These introductory comments uh, from the pastor on these other passages, I kept thinking of this over and over again. It's man's purposes behind these tools. This is the issue and has always been. The ungodly purpose to defy God and exploit his creation. And so they use technology to that end. Whether they say they believe in the right or duty of man to have a dominion of sorts in creation. For all intents and purposes, they do believe it and the proof is in how they act. The world takes it for granted that it can and should advance technologically. It can and should advance technologically. And by the way, the next time those of you who are prone to argue, uh, debate with the worldly, ask them that question sometimes, especially if they're coming from an evolutionary standpoint. Why does modern man take it for granted that he can, A, and B, that he should advance technologically? Why? What sense does that make in his world? But they take it for granted. And they take for granted who is there to stop them. But they advance, in quotes, to serve their own desires. And in some cases, the real needs of man, as they understand that. That is what Goldsworthy said, page 546, the natural extension of autonomous man. Man who rose up, of course, in Adam day one, as it were, has not stopped to take to himself these things that he thinks are his own to wield autonomously, and dominion in creation is one of them. The godly, on the other hand, purpose to make everything submit to the authority of God and serve the proper needs and appropriate desires of all mankind. Christians then ought to view technology as a tool, as our tool first, for these purposes only. Just one of many very dangerous tools if wielded by rebellion, but very powerful for good if guided by the wisdom we have been referring to. Goldsworthy makes a valuable point when he says the dominion of man was intended to reflect the gracious shepherd rule of God. What a mouthful. If technology were used and developed with a conscious effort to reflect the gracious shepherd rule of God, I think our daily lives would look much differently than they do. 
This consideration alone, if sanctified by grace, would serve to hedge our development of new technologies and use of existing technologies. The pastor following Goldsworthy made reference to the rate of development. I don't know that I am as concerned with the rate, although there is a concern there. Even good men can, as the expression goes, get ahead of themselves. But fundamentally, the same issue exists that has always existed. And that is the purposes of man in his heart. And if a man is sanctified by grace, the rate of development is not so much of a concern as his heart in the use of gracious, shepherd-like, and holy. Were we to consider the impact, the use, and dangers of all of our sciences in light of these characteristics of the Lord, technology would indeed be less of a God among us and more properly aligned in what Goldsworthy called, page 546, its benign relationship to the universe. The nine relationship to the universe. There's certainly much more there. I don't know if that's what Pastor had intended. There's a lot there to be pulled out in exploring that mandate and, our, and its relationship to the universe. Yes, Greg, that's excellent. That's exactly what I wanted to, to have set before you. I thought maybe Luke could probably express it better than myself. Uh, so, this is a great, great, great consideration, this matter of technology. So we close out, not only that chapter, but our whole study, with the fitting words. I think he summed his own work up well on page 549. <clears throat> he said, in an age when technology and the race to possess it have replaced the ancient tribal rivalries, talking about Israel, the wise men of Israel would uh, remind us that the word wisdom was, at least for a while, a synonym for technology as it then existed. These sages are worthy companions, talking about the wisdom books, the wisdom books and the wisdom writers. These sages are worthy companions as we press on towards the cosmic regeneration. <laughs> Interesting phraseology, but I think that he's talking about the, the time in which God will burn up the heavens, make a new heaven and new earth. In unexpected ways, they teach us trust and the fear of the Lord. In doing so, they compel us to the source of true wisdom in the person and work of Christ. He who is the way, the truth, and the life remains the beginning and the goal of every man's search for order and meaning in the universe. That is exactly what Luke just said, what he just taught us. He summarized it in his own words, but it's the exact same teaching that he, he, he who is the way, the truth, and the light, he remains the beginning and the goal 
of every man's search for order and meaning in the universe, and I would add it to include, of course, technology. Should be the end of technology as well. The men of Israel may surprise and even offend us with their earthliness and homespun wisdom. At times we may find it difficult to recognize God's voice speaking to us through them. But God's highest wisdom was himself to become one with them and us as the God-man. That was God's highest display of wisdom was becoming man himself. And then I underline this is a wonderful adage. Thus he made the world our classroom. The whole world our classroom. There is nothing man can learn if viewed rightly that will not point him to the creator. All of science, even godless science, the facts, the facts point him continually to God. And the whole world then becomes our classroom. Whether we consider the ways of Solomon's aunt, we ponder Job's Leviathan, or we marvel with, how do you pronounce it? Colonnade. <laughs> Colonnade. That is, of course, the Hebrew word for teacher, preacher. Whether we consider the ways of Solomon's aunt, ponder Job's Leviathan, or marvel with Colonnade at life's deepest mysteries, Christ alone will transform all the distortions and ambiguities of our myoptic view. He is our wisdom and thus turns the words of the ancient Hebrew wise men into the urgent proclamation of the gospel which summons us to trust him for everything that is in life. Proverbs 8. Blessed is the man who listens to me. Watching daily at my doors. Waiting at my doorway. For whoever finds me. Finds life. And receives favor. From the Lord. Well said. Well said I think. Christ alone he says will transform all the distortions and ambiguities of our myoptic view. This is how we should view technology. And in spite of the criticisms of our opponents in history, years gone by and to this day, real Christians are not against technology. Real Christians are not against development. As Luke taught us, real Christians see these things only as another tool, another tool that belong to Christ that are to enable us to fulfill the dominion mandate. But 
apart from that purpose. Luke kept using that word purpose. Apart from that purpose, it is a tool in the hands of the ungodly to further declare their autonomy and express their autonomy against uh, without God. Well said, in my opinion. Any other comment or question regarding these things?